With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and, and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. What hasn't this guy done? Reggie Bissame, first off, when I got his book and it was sitting on my table, I always read everybody's books before they come on my podcast. My son saw the book and he says, wait, you're going to have Reggie on your podcast? And I'm like, yeah, you've heard of him? Heard of him. And he showed me all these videos on YouTube. Reggie is like, he's literally become a human meme. He was the CEO of Nintendo for many years. You, you, you played on every one of his uh, you know, Wii Sports and the and the all the Nintendo products that he's released. He, but before that, he's also was involved in Pizza Hut, Panda Express, VH1. So he's been in a lot of industries. And there was some very specific things I learned about him, not only about business, but about creativity. That sometimes a way to be creative is to create something that is underwhelming according to the common metrics of success but is different and unique in other metrics. You'll see what I mean in the examples, but we have a great talk, and I'm also curious, how do you become a human meme? So here's Reggie Thiesame, author of a great new book, Disrupting the Game. Reggie, I, I also was horrified I would miss this because my son would kill me. Like I mentioned, no, I didn't even mention that you were coming on the podcast. He saw your book on my table and he was like, holy, whatever, you're going to have, you know, Reggie on the podcast. And I'm like, yeah, do you know who he is? He's like, yeah, he's, a, he's like a meme. He has all these meme videos. We, and then he starts showing me the videos. They're hilarious. Like you, you are a meme. <laughs> Well, thank you for that, and uh, I'm I'm glad I was able to make you a little bit more of a hero with your uh, with your son. That sounds great. It's true. You, I am more of a hero now, and I would have been I would have gone from hero to zero if I missed this podcast. So, uh, but you know, it's an interesting thing, and I want to get into all your stuff. But it's an interesting thing that sometimes the best way to market a product and a brand is to be you, and everyone to you know recognize you with the brand and favorable content with that and so on. It's like, oh, it's that guy Reggie. I'm going to go play the Nintendo 3DS now. Absolutely. You know, the 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 thing about these memes, with the exception of one, right? So the, the, the very first presentation I made with very specific comments, that was planned. But all of the other memes, right? The the step on the the we balance board and say my body is ready. Uh you know, completely unscripted. Uh, I, I gotta, you know, that's all the time I have. I need to go back to playing Animal Crossing on my Nintendo 3DS. Completely unscripted. It just happened. And so you're you're exactly right. The best way to engage with your audience is to be authentic and to uh, to do things that come right from the heart. Let me ask you a question on that. You've always presented when you say be authentic. You always go on stage, and it's and it's funny, like you say. Uh, my body is ready, or I got to go back to playing this game. And it's it's optimistic. It's funny. It's when you present that kind of like 
authenticity, it's almost as if you just assume the company is going to do great. So everyone else should assume it. And that's kind of the feeling you give out. But what happens when things aren't going so well and you're on stage? How do you have, have you had that experience where you've been authentic in those cases or what, what is an example of authenticity in those cases? Sure. Well, so what's interesting about my journey is whether I was promoting uh, Crisco Shortening or promoting uh, Guinness Stout, I've always personally invested my time, my effort, my passion into that particular product. So just imagine for a moment, you know, here's a 22-year-old man working on Crisco Shortening, baking pies, baking cookies. My family, my kids loved it. So, you know, I do believe in that type of personal investment. And when the business isn't healthy or when things are going in the wrong direction, at least for me, what it's done is it's encouraged me to go even deeper, look for more insights, look for more opportunities, try and find ways to turn the business around. Because if I can identify a need and bring that product to market, then it has the opportunity to, to turn things around. So when I was working on Crisco shortening, you know, one of the things that I found was, you know, measuring out shortening is one of the worst experiences a baker can go through because, yeah, it's it kind of gets all over the place, the texture, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, at that point, we started playing around with the idea of having shortening in sticks like butter right? Mm. Wrapped in wax paper and, you know, how that would make it easier for the baker. Well, I left the business uh, to go work on some other products while I was at P&G, came back, and that product was finally getting at the point of going into a test market. So we had had the idea, we conceptualized it, and it actually worked. It, it drove the business forward. So I do believe even when the business is not doing well, continuing to search for those insights of how to turn it around is uh, is being authentic. You know, and and you mentioned, you know, Crisco shortening and the, your time at Procter and Gamble. There's so many things I want to get to, so we'll 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 see what we could we could get in cuz Nintendo's obviously a really important one and even post Nintendo, but Procter and Gamble seems like on the one hand when I hear someone's working at Procter and Gamble, I think to myself that really doesn't sound so exciting. <laughs> but at the same time, so many great business leaders of this past generation started off their career at Procter & Gamble. Steve Case, and I believe even Steve Ballmer, two of them. And what is it about, and you, another one, like what is it about Procter & Gamble that bred all these amazing executives? P&G, Procter & Gamble, in my view, really teaches you how to think about a business, teaches you how to prioritize product, how to prioritize people, how to think about uh, driving new ideas. It really is just a fantastic training ground for all of these skills. And that's why, absolutely, you look over the last 20, 30 years, uh, chief executives or, or great leaders, so many started at uh, P&G because of that training. And I also have to tell you, you know, to stay at P&G, you, you need to have a certain mentality. And I, I didn't, you know, and that mentality is you, you need to be satisfied with relatively low levels of growth. You need to be satisfied with relatively low levels of ongoing change. Um, that's the nature of consumer packaged goods. You know, if you're able to grow that type of business five or 6% a year, if you're able to get a couple points of cost savings, your profitability is growing by 8% or so, you're a hero in that type of environment. That wasn't for me. I wanted high pace, fast growth types of environments, which is why I gravitated to restaurants. That's why I gravitated and, and did so well with Nintendo and video games, highly fast paced, you're constantly changing uh, your approach, reacting to consumer needs, you know, putting out products that consumers didn't even know that they wanted or needed. That is a very different type of environment versus P&G. But the fundamental training 
is what people uh, take with them and and leverage into other experiences. Well, let, let's talk about Pizza Hut and Panda Express. These businesses fascinate me as well. Like, what makes a good pizza restaurant? Because obviously some pizza places have become huge and some go out of business and some bad, some places that make bad pizza get huge. And so what what's up with pizza restaurants? You know, so look, um, in the restaurant industry, it starts with, in my view, how good is your product? And, and your product is more than just the food, right? It's the service. It's the combination of what you get for what you pay. All of those factors uh, influence just how successful you are. So the Pizza Hut model was high-quality chain restaurant. Chain meaning it's consistent. You know what you're going to get every single time. Delivery options. You know, they, they had a menu of offerings that continue to make sense. A competitor like Little Caesars, right? They're they're a different animal. They're all about a lot of volume uh, for low price. And so the quality isn't nearly as good. They don't offer delivery because that's an added uh, expense to their operations. So it's a no frills, a lot of food for low price type offering. And for a segment of the population, it does quite well. So it really comes down to you know, in, in any player in the restaurant in, industry, including pizza, what's your product, uh, the food itself, the service, everything else. And I was fortunate at the time when I was with Pizza Hut, we were rolling out delivery. So we were growing uh, leaps and bounds. We were adding more and more restaurants. So that's another way to have a great product. We were convenient for the consumer to access us. And uh, and I had the opportunity to work on a, a, a great new product initiative in Bigfoot Pizza to try and kill off Little Caesars. So we went head-to-head against that particular competitor. It, it seems like your forte is uh, introducing the new product to compete with competitors. So, so rather than going head-to-head as Pizza Hut versus Little Caesars, it's like you spun off a child this Bigfoot pizza, and that gets to go head-to-head with Little Caesars. And it seems like that's a good strategy in general for for business. Like, rather than, like, if, let's say I'm competing with someone, let's say I have a business, I'm a laundromat, and there's a laundromat down the street that's maybe a little bit higher end or a little bit lower end. It seems like the key is not to go, in the Reggie philosophy, if I'm putting it together from your book, the key is not to go directly head-to-head, but but perhaps brand another service that's on the same higher or lower level and then have that new brand go head to head. That is absolutely true. You know, and, and the, the way I would explain it is, you know, I, I don't believe in going quote unquote head to head against your competitor. All, all that means is it becomes a money game. Who's going to outspend who? I do believe you're much better off thinking about your own strengths, right? What do I do really, really well? Uh, thinking about your competitor. What is it that they do well? Where are their weaknesses? And ideally finding that intersection of what I do well and what is their weakness and going at that vector and pushing that agenda. And whether you do it with your current brand or whether you do it with a different brand, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a nuance in the details. But to stay with your laundromat analogy, if, if, if what I do great is, um, you know, I, I have uh, a large number of machines. I have a friendly staff. I have, you know, all, all of the, uh, the product available for you in terms of soaps and, and, uh, and uh, softeners for your clothing. But what I also do is I've got a piece of my business where I'll do all of the washing for you. So you just drop it off and leave and you don't have to deal with waiting around then that becomes a vector that I push on because my competitor who's doing something completely different just can't offer the same service. And so the question is, when you're introducing new products, a lot of, there's a huge debate in business, I feel that's never resolved, which is, which is what is focus? Everyone says, focus on your business, don't lose focus. And yet, let's take the example of Panda Express where you were for a little bit. Uh, you know, they were a reliable, uh, a cheap, reliable food court option. You would see 
Taco Bell, Panda Express, and a bunch of other regulars for in food courts. And, uh, but, but you then said, you know, we can also make money with having street locations and doing delivery, fast throughput, takeout and delivery. So are you losing focus there or are you somehow adding focus or changing focus? Talk to me about focus. Sure. So look, I, I think it all comes down to being crystal clear on what you do well and what it is that you're trying to do to grow your business. So with Panda, Panda Express, great food. I love it, by the way. It's fantastic. Fantastic food, great uh, range of offerings. But you know, at the time I was there, largely mall food court offerings. And the issue is if you're trying to grow, there's not going to be a, there's not an endless supply of mall food courts. And it was prescient, especially as malls started to close and, and things of that nature, the company needed to do something different. And so the thought process was, how do we how do we take our great food and get it closer and closer to the consumer? So we're gonna we're gonna figure out a storefront that we could put on any street corner and make our great food available to more and more consumers. And that's what I was charged to go do. And what was really interesting is that the, the company had tried to do it before, but all they did was take the mall food court concept and put that on a street corner. And that didn't work because consumers wanted to, to potentially have drive-through. They wanted to potentially have delivery. Uh, yes, for a lunch occasion, they may want you know the, the proverbial two or three item combination plate. But when you're ordering for a family, you want to mix and match what it is that you want. And you want to buy it at volume for yourself and your family. And that's just not what they were doing. So I took what was good about the company and the offerings and twisted it enough in order to have a restaurant be successful on any street corner in the world. And that was the Panda Express street store. So it was a very focused idea. It was uh, about helping the company drive revenue growth, location growth, which was its key to long-term success. And it was also a way to make sure that it preserved its survival, knowing that there was not an endless supply of malls for them to enter into. And it was a very successful uh, a successful store. Uh, it did extremely well. They continue to open these restaurants today. And uh, and so I, I, I don't think there's a simple answer to, well, you know, it was that a focused strategy? I certainly think it was. Um, it all starts with what is it that you do really well? Where's the opportunity and how are you going to grow? And also about mitigating risk because you saw the risks in just mall growth. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it, it certainly was mitigating the risk of decline and mitigating the, the risk of not being able to add more locations when, you know, in order to be the dominant player, uh, you know, that was their key. They needed to have, you know, the locations that would eventually be able to sustain marketing and, and all of the other things you need to be successful in the restaurant industry. And now, how do you go from, and I, I, I'm going to skip over VH1 for a second, but like, you're going into all these different industries. What made you think, okay, well, it's just natural for me to work for one of the biggest video game companies in the world, Nintendo, you know, run by a, a Japanese corporation. I'm totally comfortable with this. You had never done something like that before. Like what I, I see, obviously it was an interesting challenge and Nintendo was kind of floundering at the time against the Sony PlayStation and Microsoft Xbox. But what did you think about when you were trying to decide whether to take this job? For me, it was having a deep understanding of what is it I'd like to do? What is it that I can be successful doing in the future? And, you know, leveraging those aspects in, in, of who I am and how I think about business that made this opportunity so appealing. So by the time Nintendo came calling, I had already had 20 plus years of business experience. I, I love driving growth. I love taking on business challenges uh, and finding ways to turn businesses around. Uh, 
I love the strategic challenge of thinking through how to position a business for the future. I love organizational challenges of identifying top performers and helping them grow. So I, I, I knew all of the things that I like to do. And uh, on top of that, I was a gamer. I had been playing video games since, uh, you know, since my high school and junior high school days. Okay, wait, let me, let me address that for a second. So you're, you're born in 1961, high school, let's say you're 16 years old. So that's 1977. There was just Pong. <laughs> exactly. It was, it was Atari, ColecoVision, and television. It was those early systems. Odyssey. Remember Odyssey, Odyssey, right? All of those early systems that you know, we would play around with. Um, and you know that continued into when I was in college. So now it's late 70s, early 80s. I moved away from playing, let me call it traditional video games. I was now playing arcade games. Right, and I understand you're an arcade game aficionado. Yeah, what? What? Maybe you know, but what's the most popular quarter arcade game ever? Ah, uh, well, I'm probably biased, and I would say Donkey Kong, but it could potentially be Defender. Could be um, Defender is it? There and you I was go. Surprised with that? I thought it would be like Pac. I thought it was Pac Man, but Defender is the answer, and, yeah. and that's my favorite. That Defender. You know, so you know, for me, I I, I gravitated toward uh, that type of experience. Um, there was a break in time as I was a junior executive at P&G, as I was starting a family. You know, I, I didn't have the time to play those uh, games, but then gravitated back in the early 90s with the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. And beginning with that system, you know, I played every system that came out thereafter. Uh, you know, Sony systems, PS2, the original Xbox, you know, all of those systems I had played and so here I am, you know, uh, as a businessman, having an orientation toward growth, toward uh, producing change in every situation I would be, and then having, uh, you know, a passion for video games and a knowledge of video game industry from a player's perspective. And then you get a phone call from a recruiter saying, you know, Nintendo needs a, a head of sales and marketing for its largest subsidiary in the world. Are you interested? And well, my answer. Why did they call you? Why did the recruiter call you? It, you know, it was completely random. Um, you know, I, 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 I've adapted a saying. You know, an old Roman philosopher's saying, and I do believe that great opportunities are an intersection of capability and opportunity, meaning. You know, having the skills, being capable in taking advantage of a particular situation and that opportunity presenting itself. You know, that combination in the Roman proverb is referred to as luck, but I, I see it as a great combination to propel yourself forward and whatever it might be, career, life, whatever the case may be. So it was completely random. You know, I, I, I certainly had a good reputation across the various industries I'd worked in, but it was completely random. And uh, and quite fortunate from that standpoint. I mean, but did someone say we need an executive for Nintendo? I got it. Let's call the Panda Express guy. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sure what happened was there's a conversation that says we need someone who has a proven track record, creating change wherever they've been, has worked in fast-paced industries has classical marketing training from their earliest experiences, has a knowledge of the entertainment industry. You know, let's look at the subset of people that fall into that mix. And it was probably me and a handful of people uh, that were all, you know, contacted in some way, shape, or form and went through the interview process. But I, I do think that was the collection of skills that they were looking for, and I was fortunate to have those. And so you get there and the problems probably almost seemed overwhelming. Like you're up against Sony with the PlayStation 2, which was, which was the leader at that moment. And Microsoft had just introduced the Xbox. What, were you a little scared? I think I would be a little scared. You know, for me, I, I knew that the company had this collection of fantastic franchises. I mean, it, when you think about video game franchises, there's Mario, 
there's Donkey Kong, there's Legend of Zelda. There are all of these franchises that are all part of the Nintendo stable. You think of some of the best rated games of all time, they're part of the Nintendo stable. So I was convinced that the company had the development chops to be able to create great content. What I needed to be convinced of is that uh, my ideas would at least be considered, that my push and my challenge would be uh, at least reviewed with an open mind. I didn't want to go and just, you know, be uh, be someone hitting their head against the wall. And I was I was warned by some of my most trusted advisors not to take the role. You know, Reggie, they are a Japanese company. Reggie, you know, the the industry is uh, is not a healthy industry. Reggie, Nintendo is under risk, you know, everything that you described. But for me, I saw the challenge in taking on the role. And I also forced a conversation with the global president at the time in order to make sure that he and I would have a strong connection, that you know I would be able to put forward my ideas and that we could build enough trust that he would not only consider my ideas, but when it would be a 50-50 type of situation, that I would get the benefit of the doubt and we would be able to push forward ideas that I believed in. And, uh, and, and it worked. Uh, I was able to push forward those 50-50 balls. I was able to drive a lot of ideas out into the marketplace. And uh, it helped turn Nintendo around. I mean, literally, Nintendo, and I do this, mean this literally, they were a game changer at that particular moment, like within a couple of years after you arrived with the Wii. Like, what... And and you're right. Now that I think about it, they had the franchises. So if they could just have the platform by which to develop content on those franchises, it would attract people. And and the Wii became so much more. Like I had taken also a break in my early twenties and so on from from playing video games. And the Wii brought me back because my because that's how I would play with my kids. We both they would destroy me at tennis on the Wii. But what? What was, how did that come to be? Maybe describe, well, first, when you get there, you're, you're up against these technological behemoths of Sony and Microsoft. How did you even start to think about challenging them? Like what, what change could you do to, to challenge them? And, what, and how did you sort of discover the capabilities within the company to implement those, those changes? You know, so the, the path to innovation really started with a deep understanding of the business, the business conditions, and how to improve the performance going forward. And so again, you know, I'm joining the company in late 2003. And yes, while Microsoft had entered the business with Xbox, the PS2 was selling exceptionally well, but on a global basis, the sales of software was actually stagnating. There there wasn't a dramatic increase in software sales. And only one out of three people globally played video games at the time. So the way Nintendo saw the business, they saw a business that was stagnating. They saw a business that was somewhat insular uh, with its uh, current group of players. And Nintendo's thought process was, we need to innovate by bringing new players into video games. We need to do it not through the traditional vectors of more technology, prettier pictures, more graphic capabilities. We need to do it in a different way to attract an audience. And their first innovation down this path was actually their handheld product called the Nintendo DS. And that's, that was the first product that I helped to launch. And so, you know, right there, what it highlights is N- Nintendo saw the business very differently. They, they identified a way to push an innovation agenda that its competitors in, in 
Sony and Microsoft were ill-prepared to go down that path. And the company had the ability to develop games that fit its objective. You know, let, let me ask you about that because it's a really interesting point that I didn't think about. Sony and Microsoft really didn't have, I don't think, handheld game devices. And if you remember in the 70s, remember those kind of handheld football games where you're just like moving a blip, trying to get one past the other guy? The Nintendo DS kind of reminded me of a return to that in some sense, which I loved as a kid. And then my kids loved the Nintendo, you know, the, the handheld devices. Well, absolutely. And and before the Nintendo DS, Nintendo had Game Boy, right? Uh, which had revolutionized handheld gaming. It was on Game Boy that they introduced the franchise Pokemon, right? Which is, you know, continues to be a worldwide phenomenon. So yes, you know, we, Nintendo innovated first in its handheld, which the other platforms didn't have. They innovated with franchises that they could create because the other insight at the time was that neither Sony nor Microsoft had large internal development teams. They were relying on you know, companies like Electronic Arts or Activision, other companies that developed games for their system. And Nintendo didn't have to do that as much. So it really was... Was that a... Was that a uh, I'm sorry, was that a source of... I mean, it's one thing when you have like an open system like Microsoft with Xbox and other developers continue introducing creativity. Is it a problem when you're too closed and you don't have an outside groups developing games for you? It, absolutely. It can be a problem. And you know, one of the things that Nintendo did over time was to create more ways that these both large and small external developers could create content for Nintendo platforms. And by doing that, it actually added strength to what Nintendo was already doing. But you're exactly right. You can't, you can't be on either side of the spectrum. You can't rely 100% on your own intellectual property, nor can you just rely on external developers creating content because those external developers are chasing profit just like everyone else. And so they're not necessarily committed to your system. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? 
answer to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gotta use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Okay, so the Nintendo DS came. That was the first product you launched. What led from that to the Wii, which was really was just a a resolution as it, as it was referred to. <laughs> yeah. So the, the Wii was just a continuation on that same vector, right? So the Nintendo DS had tremendous uh, sales performance. The company introduced uh, games like Nintendogs, which was a pet simulator, which young kids loved. Nintendo introduced software on the Nintendo DS called Brain Age that targeted consumers over 50. So Nintendo was having a lot of success in growing the audience. And the Wii was the next step in that innovation. It was a gyroscopically controlled uh, uh, input device that you could hold with one hand. It looked like a TV remote. So you would swing this remote like you would swing a tennis racket to play tennis, or uh, you could use it as a baseball bat with that same type of swinging motion. You could play bowling with a bowling-type motion. And so it made it really easy for consumers to pick up the device and to begin to play. And that was the, the next step. 
But you know, what was interesting with this product is we needed to find a way to get consumers comfortable with this type of gameplay, had never been introduced before. And we needed to do it in a way that uh, the consumers would talk about it and buzz about it and, and create a sense of momentum because you know, we couldn't outspend our competitors from a pure marketing standpoint. We needed to have that strong word of mouth. And fortunately, the company was working on a piece of software that came to be called Wii Sports. So a collection of five sports, baseball, uh, golf, bowling, boxing, as well as tennis. And I pushed for that software to be included in the overall proposition that was we uh, in my market. Because I, I believed that if everyone could play Wii Sports, have that as, let me call it a cultural touchstone, that we would be able to drive just tremendous word of mouth that would help drive sell-through of the system. And then we could sell all of our traditional games, the Mario games, the Zelda games, into that large base of consumers. But this was a highly contentious decision because uh, the company really because it, what would ha, what would if you bought a Wii and there was nothing with it how would you know it was good well exactly right so you know if if you had to go buy a piece of software you know not everyone is going to buy you know one particular piece of software so say Wii Sports they may buy a collection of other games so what i saw as the risk is if only you know, one out of every 10 or two out of every 10 consumers bought Wii Sports at the time, it wouldn't have that cultural momentum that we wanted to have to move the business forward. On the other side, what the developers said to me is, Reggie, first, we don't give our product away for free. That's not what Nintendo does. But second, we would be foregoing you know, $50 in revenue for each piece of software that uh, that is given away instead of sold. And so they were they were against the idea. But I was I was fortunate to be persuasive. I was fortunate to really sell the idea. And what's interesting is that the company agreed to include Wii Sports with the the Wii hardware in my market, which was the Americas, so Canada, US, uh, South America, as well as in Europe. But in the home market of Japan, they sold Wii Sports separately. So it turned into a perfect A-B test. And lo and behold, in the Americas and in Europe, we did become this cultural movement. Everyone talked about Wii Sports. Wii Sports was being played in retirement homes. It was being played on cruise ships. It, it really uh, it galvanized a group of players, young and old, experienced gamers, inexperienced gamers, to go buy the Wii system. And the Wii system did okay in Japan, but not nearly to the same degree. It didn't have the same cultural impact. So that one decision, that, that one push to do something different and to innovate and, and to disrupt in a new way, really was the difference between a system that would have sold okay versus something that truly was groundbreaking and and set up Nintendo for ongoing success. And and you know that was the, we first came out in I think 2006 mid 2000s and what what happened after that like how did the entire video game industry evolve how did you guys keep up with with everyone else like did things just get more, the graphics just get a lot better? Like what What was going on in the game industry at that point after that? You know, so, you know, the, the graphics have continued to get better and better. But I would argue that it's no longer a differentiating element between the competitors in the space. It's taken for granted that graphics are better. Uh, connected gaming continued to evolve. And so what this means is, you know, I can I can be on the internet playing my system, competing against someone else. Um, so we no longer had to be in the same room in order to, to play a multiplayer type game. So that's been another vector in how the industry has progressed. 
But again, now it's somewhat taken for granted. It's not a differentiator. So, you know, companies like Nintendo had to constantly think about, okay, where could we differentiate? And in some areas, uh, Nintendo was able to differentiate exceptionally well and did well with those types of products. As an example, you know, Nintendo was an early believer in uh, true 3D types of technology. Uh, And they introduced a handheld device that leveraged 3D without the need for glasses. And it it did, again, quite well in the marketplace. Uh, But when you innovate, the fact is not every new idea is going to work. And so Nintendo continued to innovate with a concept where they hoped you would play your games both on a big screen TV as well as on a smaller handheld device. They saw interesting ways of creating new types of content. And to support this innovation, they launched a product called the Wii U, which did not do well in the marketplace um, for a variety of different reasons. The, the games were not there to support the ongoing sales. Uh, the communication of the core benefits of this system were difficult to explain. And so that product didn't do as well. But the company did learn that their core idea, big screen gaming as well as gaming on the go, was a critically uh, important and very positively perceived idea. So that led to their next innovation called the Nintendo Switch, which is out in the market today. It, it is the best-selling system that Nintendo has ever had um, uh, in terms of home console sales, and it's continuing to disrupt in the marketplace. What's the differentiator there between that and the competitors? It's a huge differentiator, right? Because now as a game player, I never need to leave that experience behind. I could play on my big screen TV. Now, you know, I need to go to work or I need to go to school or I need, I'm going on vacation. Now I take the device as a handheld device and, and play it on the go. So, you know, it's, it's been a fantastic innovation for them. There's continuing to be uh, other innovations in the marketplace. I, I believe that you know, is it five years from now, eight years from now? I I don't know, but we're going to be at a point where I don't think there are true consoles in your home. It's going to be a truly connected experience, all delivered uh, wirelessly into your home, Uh, much like Netflix delivers uh, video into your home. There's going to be a Netflix of games types of situation. So that's, you know, that's one of the interesting things about this business. It's continuing to innovate. It's continuing to bring new experiences to the consumer. Well, what do you think of this concept of what's called the metaverse, where it's like these virtual environments where everybody's connected and presumably there will be games. But I don't really see the gaming companies getting in there. You see companies like Facebook kind of trying to make inroads there and, and also startups. What do companies like Nintendo think of this next gen, presumably next generation of games. I'm I'm not sure either way. So I personally, I, I do believe that the metaverse is something that is coming, and the way that you describe it, I agree. It's it's a digital immersive experience. You have your customized avatars. You're having experience, a wide range of different types of experiences. There's a common currency involved in all of this. So I, I do believe that we are working our way through that type of situation. Um, I do believe there are a, company, a couple companies today that are delivering on this in, in different forms. One is Roblox. Um, you know, Roblox is an environment where you've got a range of different experiences. You've got your own personal avatar that you can dress up in a variety of different ways. There's one common currency. So it's being delivered today through your uh, screen. Another company that has done elements of the metaverse is Fortnite, created by a company called Epic, where you know it's one experience, it's gaming-centric, but there are concerts that have been held in that experience. There have uh, been movie premieres in the Fortnite experience. So I, I do believe we're, we're going in this direction. There's a lot of debates. Is it going to be 3D immersive where you've got to wear some sort of goggles? Is it something that's more AR augmented reality that's delivered a different way? 
I'm not a big fan of VR. Uh, I haven't seen a compelling experience to date in the VR world. But, you know, we are moving toward more and more immersive types of experiences. And especially as more and more people play video games. You know, I, I stated earlier when I first started, about one out of every three people played video games. Today, it's about eight out of every 10 play some form of video games. So I do believe this is something that we will experience uh, sometime in the future. Like if you were at Nintendo right now, where would you push? You know, if, if I were still at the company, I, I would be certainly pushing toward, you know, what's, what's our next quote-unquote system after the current Nintendo Switch? They have to be thinking about that in terms of what's next, how to continue to innovate in ways that make sense for them. Nintendo has had strong success with augmented reality. So I suspect the company is pushing in the AR space to create new and different types of experiences. Uh, that's where I would place my money. Um, I do believe the company can be successful in a pure digital download type of experience, i.e. the Netflix of games, because Nintendo has all of these great franchises. It'd be a place to go to play my Mario games, my Zelda games, my Animal Crossing games, all of these wonderful franchises. Those would be the vectors that I would push on because I, I do believe the company has some inherent strengths in those various areas. Like what would the Netflix of games look like? Because for instance, Netflix itself, is hardware independent, obviously. Like you could down on any, doesn't matter who makes the TV, you could download a movie. They just buy a lot of content from movie companies and they allow streaming of it. What would the Netflix of games look like? So it, what it would look like is similarly, this would be delivered through your internet connection. It would be agnostic to any screen. So whether I play on that 60 inch screen uh, on my living room wall or whether it's my mobile phone. I do believe you need some sort of controller, right? So that's one of the differentiators versus a Netflix. You're gonna need a controller that would wirelessly connect to this screen, but those technologies exist. You know, these games would be made available to you digitally. The, the one challenge with this vision today is the wireless connectivity in most people's homes isn't fast enough to deliver the content that's going back and forth. Meaning if I'm playing a game against you, you know, you need to see my moves with very low latency, low time lag between what I do and what you do for us to have a positive experience. And the internet speeds in our homes just aren't fast enough uh, wirelessly. It is if you're wired, yeah, no, unless you change the hardware. So like you could just send me coordinates and then the hardware could do the, the, the rendering of the 3D graphics. True, but then, so now that's more of a, a console hardware type of approach. Mm. My, my thinking is there's going to be a time, and I said, you know, is it five years from now, eight years from now? But there's going to be a time when you know, your home router is going to be able to deliver wireless speeds that are you know, five times faster than where we are today. And at that point, this latency issue doesn't exist. And we can have a great experience playing a video game completely digitally, completely delivered by the cloud, uh, where the only hardware you need is a controller. So now in, in that world, you know, imagine that I'm serving you a digital subscription 15 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month, uh, endless supply of games that you could play whenever you want, um, that your friends can play and you could have great experiences together. That's where I think the industry is moving to. Uh, and uh, I, I think we're certainly going to get there. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, then after Nintendo, you joined the board of GameStop for a little while. That seemed like as much as Nintendo might have been floundering when you got there, GameStop seemed like a dinosaur. <laughs> Who goes to a store now to buy games? Like, what could have been done there? You know, so uh, again, if you haven't noticed by now, I, I tend to gravitate toward challenges. And yes, 
Uh, you know, GameStop was in a difficult situation, and it, it th- there were really a, a number of different things going on, right? So first, you know, the video game industry was in the process of transitioning to the next Sony and the next Microsoft system. So whenever that happens, the purchase of hardware and software tends to slow down. So that was a negative drag on their revenue. The second thing that was going on was COVID. Uh, As COVID hit, as literally as I was joining the board, so stores were closed, you know, consumers were hunkering down at home. Uh, That created a significant amount of issue. And then thirdly, yes, you know, the the company had not invested in its e-commerce capabilities to be able to... uh, sell you digital goods as well as to sell you a physical game if that's what you wanted to experience. So there are a lot of challenges. Um, and you know what I brought to that situation was obviously a deep knowledge of the video game industry, uh, a deep knowledge of how to prepare for this transition to the new systems and how GameStop needed to prepare itself and a focus on on e-commerce in a way that the company could win. And the company was making significant progress. Uh, People were betting, financially betting, that GameStop would go bankrupt before the PS5 and the new Xbox would launch later on that holiday. Um, And uh, the the company survived. Uh, The company did exceptionally well with the launch of the new systems. Uh, There was still a lot of work to do, particularly on the point you raised, which is, you know, as more and more software is being delivered digitally, how does GameStop leverage its knowledge of the industry, its store associates, which were, you know, another major advantage? You had, you know, hundreds of thousands of passionate employees who knew video games, loved video games, loved talking about video games. How do you unleash that in a digital environment? Uh, And thinking that through was a critical need. Um, So that's what gravitated me to the situation, uh, what I saw needed to be done. And the the company was making progress in uh, in making all of those choices. And uh, do you think they'll survive? Do you think they'll they'll flourish? You know, I I don't know. when, um, after I'd been on the board um, for about, what, six months, um, there was an activist uh, investor who uh, agitated for change, joined the board uh, with two uh, past peers from their, their previous endeavor. And you know this is the uh, the team that's in place today from a from a board leadership standpoint. Um, they've been uh, silent on their strategies and their tactics. So who knows uh, if they're going to be successful uh, moving forward? But you know I do believe GameStop does have uh, a number of things going for it in its employees, in its place in the industry. That if they could hone those elements, absolutely, they could be successful. Um, I guess we'll all see. Now, you know, the, the gaming community, as you mentioned earlier, is like filled with passionate young people. Like they love gaming, they get addicted to it. They love the culture of it. Gaming blogs since the beginning of the internet have been hugely popular. And then suddenly comes along Reggie, this a gaming executive, who you do these YouTube videos and now they're getting like millions of views across all between the videos and the meme videos and so on. Uh, like, was that a surprise to you? Or are you recognized in the street? Like there's Reggie. Uh, I, I am recognized in the street um, and it's it's globally. Yeah, I was in uh, Berlin a few years ago and I was stopped on the street. Uh, I was just at a restaurant with some friends and I was stopped there. So the the recognition continues. And yeah, it was a complete surprise. It was, again, it wasn't something that was planned. It's not something we set out to do. But, you know, what we did set out to do, and again, during my time at Nintendo, we, we recognized that there is so much passion in this industry. People love their 
their favorite franchises. I would be at conventions and people would show me tattoos of of Mario and tattoos of of one of our characters, Link. You know, so there, there's just this tremendous passion. We created content, video-based content, in order to connect with the fans. And, uh, and that did exceptionally well. So part of it was strategic, part of it was serendipity. Uh, but, you know, through my continued involvement in the industry, I, I continue to, to advise some companies. Uh, I, I still am well known in that space. Uh, so the, uh, the recognition continues. Well, Reggie, your ability to go into pretty much any industry, unfortunately, you also included the gaming industry, but your ability to go into any industry, find and focus on the right innovations that could set you and your company apart from its competitors and, and drive success that way is a consistent theme in, in your book, Disrupting the Game. Uh, uh, it's, it's a lesson anybody could learn from any industry and business and, and other activities. If, I mean, while I was reading the book, I was thinking even someone who's like a writer or a podcaster, there's lessons to learn in terms of, you know, what innovation has to be constant and you, you actually, you know, I, I, I was reading how um, you attributed a lot of success uh, to, I think it was the we uh, success to Clayton Christensen's approach about maybe don't be as good, maybe underwhelm across a metric that might not be, that might be the usual metric for success and find a different metric. And I was trying to wrap my head around that a little bit. Maybe it's a final question. Can you explain that? Sure. And so, uh, again, as Nintendo analyzed the business in the, the mid-2000s, the company made a strategic decision to invest in innovative ways to play games. So gyroscopic controls or the two screens of a Nintendo DS, that's where Nintendo made a decision to innovate. And it also made a strategic decision not to invest in the highest capability processors for visual display. That was a key strategic decision. And the thought process was, we want to innovate in an area where we have advantage. We have our own internal development teams. Nintendo has developed new ways to play games from a controller perspective, beginning with the, the, the original Nintendo Entertainment System. Everything that we take for granted today, the different buttons on a controller, a joystick on a controller, rumble on a controller, these were all innovations that Nintendo brought to bear in the marketplace. So the company bet that they could continue to innovate with new ways to play and didn't have to invest as much in, let me call it, me too characteristics around visual display and things of that nature. And we used Clayton Christensen's book, Innovator's Dilemma, as a way to explain the choices that we had made. Said another way, the company made these decisions, they were confident that they would play out in the marketplace. But the company also recognized that the approach was so different that we needed to explain to people what we were doing and why we were doing it. And so we gravitated toward these business books as a way to explain our strategy and reinforce our strategy. And something phenomenal happened, right? So yes, people would go buy these books and read these books, and I, I would use them in speeches uh, to explain our strategy. But then I would get into debates with fans of the competing systems, and they would offer up their own you know, business book examples for why what Sony was doing was right or what Microsoft was doing was, was right. It was, it was a really interesting situation, you know, these, these 20-year-old gamers you know, debating me with different business books. But it, it was effective in getting people to step back and think about, look, you can approach a business in a variety of different ways. No one way is right or wrong, but... You, you need to be clear in what you're doing. You need to articulate what you're doing so that all your various constituents can understand it. And then you have to deliver the goods. You, you, have, to, uh, you have to perform the way that you're describing you will perform. 
And, uh, you know, Nintendo during my time was fortunate to be able to do that. Reggie Bisame, author of Disrupting the Game from the Bronx to the Top of Nintendo. I appreciate all you've done so much as an avid former Wii player and also a big consumer of Panda Express at different points in my life. And also, we didn't talk about VH1, but as a VH1 watcher, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And once again, now I am a hero to my son, so I appreciate that as well. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for all the kind, kind words. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Reggie.